All right. If you will take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews, the sixth chapter. Join me in standing, if you would, out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. We return to Hebrews chapter 6. We return to verse 9, again focusing our attention on verses 11 and 12. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us wisdom in this day. Help us to understand that the faith that saves comes from you. But God, the faith that sanctifies comes from you as well. Let us see that the things that are changed in us are changed by the outworking of your hand in our lives, by the outworking of faith that you give us. Let us see, let us trust, let us understand, and let us be conformed to the image of the risen Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, we've been in this passage for a few weeks. We're going to be in it for a few more. Um, And uh, we know that the Christians in Palestine have been diligent in their love for the saints. That they have ministered to the saints in prison. They have ministered to the author of the letter. They have been faithful in this way. But the author wants them to mature in their faith mature in their patience so that they might be fully assured or have total knowledge of the hope and the promise of God that is before them. And as we consider this idea for the next few weeks, we're going to go into examination in detail of each of these key components. We're going to talk about faith and patience, knowledge and hope. We're going to begin at a place that I think is the beginning, even though it's one of the last things he mentions, and that's the place of faith. It's the one thing that sets true Christianity apart from all man-made religions. Man-made religion is always going to be works-based as its key component. It's always going to focus on what we can do to make God notice us, to make God love us, to make God reward us. Man is always looking for something that he can do to set himself apart, to make sure that he is somehow in control of his destiny his soul's destination, his life, his anything. But faith? Faith is the simple truth that we cannot. Faith is the simple truth that we will not, that we do not, and that any hope that we have is totally found in the mercy and the truthfulness of God. Faith is the knowledge that if God is false, we have no hope at all. But if God is true, we need no other. So as we're thinking about how faith can mature, and the the writer talks about diligence. He talks about being diligent in all of these areas. And so there is an area in which we need to recognize that you can feed your faith or you can starve your faith. You can do things by the grace and the will of God that will cause your faith to grow, or you can do things by the will of God that cause it to die. 
Um, God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over your life and over your growth. But we are commanded, according to Scripture, to seek to grow in grace. We are commanded, according to Scripture, to seek to press after his heart, to press after his face. So what God may or may not have willed for this season in your life, if God has willed for you to be in the desert for a time, let me assure you, that is not your concern. The scripture says the secret things belong to God, but to us belong the law and the testimonies. So in other words, don't worry about what God may or may not have willed. Worry instead about what God has commanded. And what he has commanded is that you live and act in such a way that would cause your faith to grow. That would cause your faith to be more like him. This is what we're called to be. This is what we're called to do. This is how we're called to live our lives. Now, I want to just kind of think through this idea of what faith is and what faith does and how faith ties into all of these things. And I want to start at the place that says what faith is. Faith is not about sight or about work, but it's about believing the absolute authority, power, and goodness of God. When we talk about faith, what we're saying is, I believe in something. It's not just this abstract force floating in the universe that that you can tap into and all of a sudden the power of faith helps you do things that you want to do. That's not faith. Faith is connected to an object. It's belief in something. Look at me at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 1, we find these words. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead, still speaks. So the first thing the writer gives us is this idea that faith's definition is is really quite beautiful. It is the evidence of things not seen. It is the substance of things hoped for. It is the idea that there is something out there which God has promised, which you may not see yet. Faith says, I believe God. I believe what God says. I believe what God has promised. I believe that God himself will be faithful to do what he has told me he is going to do. Faith is anchored in the person of God and in his power to do what he promises he's going to do. It's one thing for me to tell you I'm going to do something, but it's quite another if you firmly believe that I have both the power and the determination to do it. Amen? If I tell you I'm going to step off the top of this building and fly... That might be my determination, but that would be a foolish determination on my part, and all of your faith would not help me. Amen? Faith must be connected to something that's real. So for us as Christians, we need to deal with the truth that what God calls us to believe in is not abstract things, but Him. And it's his power and his goodness and his faithfulness and his truthfulness 
which is the anchor and the bedrock of our faith. By that faith, we can then have confident assurance that the things that we have not yet seen, if God has promised them, they are as real as if they were in your hand. They are the substance of things which have not yet been received. They are the evidence given to you by the Spirit of of God living inside of you. It is this dynamic which draws us into a closer communion with Him. Sometimes the need for that sort of faith is why you're told to wait. Amen? Sometimes God doesn't give you what you're asking for simply because... You're a bit unsteady at the moment, and you need to learn to trust Him. You need to learn to walk in grace. You need to learn to hang on to Him and to believe Him regardless of what you can see. This is a word for all of us as we face a world gone mad, as we look at at, at a culture of death which people are proclaiming, I wish there were more abortions. When we live in a world... Where, where, where the people that we have elected to represent us do everything contrary to what we've asked them to do, it's good grounds for us to wonder if God has lost control. But the scripture tells us plainly that such thoughts are unworthy of him and unworthy of us. We need to trust him. We need to believe that he's doing what he's doing. And however his plan will work out, in the end, we will look back on these days and say, Lord, you have done all things well. You have done exactly what you said you would do, and you have done it in the best way possible, and I praise you for your goodness. Now, I can tell you that that's how we're going to see things on the backside. But standing here where we are and believing that, that's the exercise of faith. That's what we have to do. That's what we have to be convinced of in our souls, that our God can be trusted to do what he said he's going to do. It is this certainty in the face of visible absence. And and it is a confidence that God can be trusted to honor his own word. This is why Abel gets slipped in here. It says, by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. And and in that, he he demonstrated that God accepted him. Now, I hear people all the time say, well, how come God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? There's nothing in Scripture telling them what they should have done. First of all, let me just say plainly that every single word that God has said is not contained in Scripture. Okay, God has said a few more things than those 66 books contain. Clearly, according to the writer of Hebrews, Cain and Abel knew what they were supposed to do because Abel obeyed. He offered a sacrifice that was honoring to God, and more importantly, that confessed that he believed that God would do what he said he would do. Now you say, what in the world was that? Well, I want you to think about this with me for just a minute. Cain and Abel were the first generation of people. They were were the first generation birthed out of Adam and Eve. They knew firsthand what their parents had done. They weren't alive for it, But clearly, they heard the stories. They knew that their parents had walked with God in the garden. They knew that the communion that that had been enjoyed by their parents had been broken by their parents. And they knew that God had established a way by which he would still come to them in some fashion. It was not as rich as it had been, 
but it was still a fellowship. It was still a communion. And they both knew that God could be trusted to keep his word when they obeyed what he told them to do. They knew that God would honor their sacrifice when it was given with the right heart and in the right manner. And Abel believed God and did exactly what God asked him to do. What was Cain's problem? Cain thought, well, what I bring ought to be good enough too. Doesn't matter what God said. It matters what I did. It matters what I want. And if you'll stop for just a minute and think this through, this is where we always go wrong. God tells us, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to behave. This is what I want you to believe. And we say, that's fine as far as it goes, God, but I have some ideas too, and you should consider them. God says, I choose who I choose. We say, that's all well and good, God, but I think I should have something to do with that. God says, your righteousness is filthy rags. We say, that's all well and good, God, but I think my works are pretty good. God says, anything God says, and we say, that's well and good, God, but I think. And at the bottom of all of our sin, this thread runs. This idea that we have something of value to bring to God, that he should somehow recognize because we are somehow worthy. We need to understand at the outset that that whole perspective is the exact opposite of faith. That whole perspective is the exact opposite of honoring to God. In fact, it is actively dishonoring. It is as far backwards as you can get. When you tell God, yes, God, but I'm not going to listen to you, you cannot be more dishonoring than when you do that. What Scripture tells us is that it is by faith that we come into the presence of God, and it is by faith that we please Him. And in the end, this faith is something that is not necessarily of us, and it is always something that rests firmly on the solid confidence that things that I cannot see when God says they will, are. Okay? Turn thing to Matthew chapter 8. I want to show you an example of this. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 8. And we're going to start reading at verse 5. There's a couple of places in Scripture where Jesus is amazed by people's faith. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you... You should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel." And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way. As you have believed, so let it be done to you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Now what in the world just happened there? Well, this man said, I believe that you being God 
under authority, have the power to say what you need to say. You don't need to come visit my man. You don't need to lay hands on him. You don't need to see him. I understand how authority works. And I believe when I give a command that it's going to be fulfilled. I don't have to run around and follow up on it. And I can give the next command to the next guy, expecting that the first guy did what he was supposed to do, and things will go the way they're supposed to go. I have confidence in the chain of command because I live under authority too. Beloved, this is faith in action. This is the belief that God can manage his system. Because think this through. When we're saying, God, I, I, I believe what you say, but I want you to consider this. What are we really saying? That God didn't have the power to do what he set out to do, or that God didn't have the wisdom to know what he should do when he set out to do it. We're saying, God, I have information that you need. I have a perspective that you really need to get a hold of because I know something you don't know. How arrogant of us. How absolutely ridiculous that we would think for even one moment that we have anything to contribute that God needs. That we have anything to add to the conversation that God is unaware of. Or that we have anything whatsoever to say, Lord, here's a piece that you need to see before you can make your next decision. This man understood what what authority was. He understood how this works. Faith implies a simple belief. And it is a confident knowledge that what is believed is true. There's no need for extravagant proofs. And there's no need for extravagant evidences. Hang on to this. Faith is its own evidence. Do you understand that? What God has given you faith to believe is its own evidence for what he has told you is true. Look, we're Christians based on that fact. I can give you all sorts of argumentative truth to prove to you that Jesus was and that he died and that he was raised. But those same truths that I give to you, I could give to a person who is not a believer and it would make no difference in their life whatsoever. What is it that makes us believe what we believe? It's faith. It's what God has given to us. And and it's important that we understand that this faith is an alien faith. It is not something inherent in you. It's not something that you reach down into your toenails and drug up and God went, ah, there's faith, I can work with that. That's not faith. Faith is something that is beyond us. It's something that is outside of us. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 again. We're going to read the next couple of verses that we stopped at. Verses 5 and 6. Hebrews 11, starting at verse 5, it says, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, so what this tells us is that Enoch walked with God and God took him without him tasting death. It's quite an accomplishment. Something spectacularly strange about Enoch. The scripture tells us that Enoch pleased God and that he pleased God by having faith. 
And he, the faith that Enoch had was defined in two very simple phrases. First of all, he, Enoch believed that God was. And Enoch believed that God was a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, I'm going to just let that sit for a second. And we have to address something. That sounds a lot like works, doesn't it? Faith misunderstood does sound like works. Faith misunderstood sounds like something Enoch did. What's the problem with that statement? That that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Does it say God is a rewarder of those who on their own, by their own strength and their own will, diligently seek him? That's how we hear it. Enoch diligently sought God, therefore God rewarded him and gave him this this blessing because Enoch was something special. Okay. Is there any place in Scripture where it proves the lie of that belief? Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9. Let's read this carefully. Maybe I've missed something. Ah, here it is. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin. As it is written, nobody but Enoch is righteous, no, not one. Nobody but Enoch seeks after God. Nobody else. Does it not say that in your Bibles? I'm going to throw this one away. No, it doesn't say that here either. What does it say? It says, there is none righteous, no, not one. And that nobody seeks after God. There is no one who understands. Nobody seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, and with their tongues they've practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouths are full of bitterness and cursing. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does this tell us? This tells us that whatever was in Enoch to make him diligently seek God did not come from Enoch. Because we don't Nobody seeks after him. Nobody desires God. If God only saved those that desired him first, how many would be saved? None. Not one. Nobody seeks after God. The scripture is abundantly plain. The only ones who seek after him are the ones that he draws to himself. Say, preacher, that's a big statement. You're right, it is. It's a good thing I didn't make it. Look at me at John chapter 6. And let's see what God himself has to say in the person of Jesus. John chapter 6, starting at verse 26. 
Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So let's get some context here. Jesus, in the previous chapter, had fed the 5,000 men with their families and their children and everybody else. Conservative estimates say 20,000 people ate from one little boy's packed lunch. Five loaves, three fishes, two fishes, excuse me. And um, 20,000 people ate from that little box of snackables. It's remarkable. And not only did 20,000 people eat, but they picked up 12 baskets. And, and there's an interesting note about those baskets, by the way. The same word, they, they had different words for different kinds of baskets. And the word that's used for basket here is the same one that we find in Acts when it talks about them lowering Paul over the wall in a basket. This wasn't your little handhold carry basket. This was a basket. A man could fit in that basket. And they picked up 12 of them full of the fragments afterwards. Now that was a remarkable magic trick. And the people sought after the dude who could do it. They came to get food. And this is what Jesus is rebuking them about. He's gone over the other side of the lake, and they came and they found him. And he says to them, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because your bellies got filled up. So pay attention to this. Are they seeking him with faith? They're seeking him. But are they seeking him with faith? No. They're seeking him with the flesh. They're seeking him with the best that man can do. Hey, you've got something I want. I think I want it. Give it to me now, and if you don't give it to me, I'll take it by force, or I'll take you by force, and we'll make you king, and then you'll have to feed us, which was their plan throughout the entirety of his ministry. <laughs> Jesus said, you're not seeking me for the right reasons. You don't have anything in you that would make you want to do so. Do not labor for the food which perishes, verse 27, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. They said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God. Pay attention. This is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he sent. So what is the work of God? Faith. Right? The work of God is faith. It is the active faith applied to the person of Christ to believe in the one whom God has sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Um, 20,000 people fed with a little boy's snackable? Just for starters? Dead men rising? Lepers healed? Blind men seeing? Deaf men hearing? Mute men speaking, demons cast out, I could go on. What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. They're back to the bread. <laughs> Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread from God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe me. Verse 37, do not miss this. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me 
I will by no means cast out. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Then the Jews complained about him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And Jesus said, and they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So we have both sides of the coin clearly laid out in the words of Christ. Side number one, nobody can come unless the Father draws them. Somebody's going to say to me, well, God draws everybody. Of course nobody can come unless God draws them. Jesus goes on to say, every single one that the Father gives will come and will be saved. So he's clearly not talking about any sort of a general call which would excuse that heresy. What he's saying is, those that God has chosen and those that God imparts faith to will come and I will save them. And this is the work of God, not the work of man. It is the work of God to give faith. Faith is an alien component that does not exist in you. It is the very gift of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 8. It says this, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is that missing component that has to come from outside of us. And faith comes by the word of God being faithfully proclaimed. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The preaching of the word is the vessel of faith, and it is the medium through which God imparts faith in the elect. Acts chapter 16, verse 14 says, A certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. Now, it's also important that we understand that faith is not guaranteed for everyone that hears the bare words of truth. Many will hear and not believe. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 says, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Again, the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. 
So there were those among the people of God and the children of Israel who heard the truth and were not changed by it because something was missing in them. What was that something that was missing? Faith. Where does the faith come from? It is not of yourselves. It is what? The gift of God. So God gives faith where He will. And where God does not give faith, the Word will fall on dead flesh. Where God does give faith, the Word will fall on dead flesh and will impart life unto that dead flesh. That is the drawing that Jesus was talking about in John chapter 6. God drawing dead men to Himself, causing them to believe in God and to be saved. So what happens to those who hear the words and have some sort of natural ability to make use of it? Well, they become famous preachers in Texas. Faith without knowledge, or knowledge without faith, excuse me, knowledge without faith kills. You can know a whole lot about the Bible and not know the author of the scripture and be damned. And we need to recognize that just knowing some things about God does not mean that you know Him. The missing element is faith. It is the belief that God is exactly who He says He is. And how do we know what God says He is? It's in His Word. His Word speaks to us of His truth. His Word tells us who He is. His Word tells us what He has said. His Word tells us what He has done. His Word tells us everything that we need to know about Him. And His Word tells us everything that we need to know about the entirety of the world in which we live. For years, Christian churches have made uh, this this good-sounding statement which says that the Bible is our guide for faith and practice. That sounds really holy. What it really means when they apply it is that the Bible should be relegated to its little sphere of church life and not impact anything else. Because it only matters in matters of faith. It only matters in how we practice our faith. Don't don't worry about it when the Bible conflicts with science. Trust the science. Don't worry about it when the Bible conflicts with what the culture thinks. Go with the will of man. If you don't understand that this is what's being taught, read last week's paper. There's a remarkable exposition of what was taught at a local church which shows this point exactly. It's heresy. It is 100% heresy right here in River City. Okay? Trouble with a capital T. Which doesn't rhyme with H but stands for heresy. Never mind. My brain's a dangerous place. We need to recognize the truth that what God calls us to do is take him at his word and believe it 100%. This is what faith is. Faith contends for truth. Faith says, I believe God said what he said. And I believe that when God said he made the world in six days and rested on the seventh, he made the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And I believe that that matters regardless of what somebody thinks they know. I can give you all of the theological reasons for why it matters, and I love to talk about these things. You guys know this. But the part that I want you to grab onto, which is why I'm not going to go on today, is that God has said it, 
And that should settle it for you. The end. What God has said, God has meant. And that's how we have to approach this question. Now that ability to do that, that is a gift from God. That is faith. The fact that you can hear what I'm saying and nod your head this way instead of shaking it this way and throwing things at me, that is evidence of faith being planted in your souls. That is evidence that faith has been made real in you and that God is transforming you into the likeness of Christ because truth actually resonates with you. Believe me, truth does not resonate with everyone. Amen? Truth does not resonate with those that are not being called. Truth does not resonate with those that are not being drawn. Truth does not resonate with those with whom God has not given faith. Because faith is something that God Himself gives. However, there are those who have the ability to make sense of words and put them together and make order of them and find something in which they believe, which is their own imagination, regardless of what God has said. We read some of it in Mark chapter 7 this morning as Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. But I want to look at a different place where he rebuked him for the same point, Matthew 23, because he makes the point really significantly strong. Matthew 23. We're just going to read a couple of verses in the middle of this... um, This correction Jesus is rendering to the Pharisees. Verses 23 and 24. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay the tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. What's he saying? He's saying, you guys understood enough to make your own rules. You understood the words that were being said. You didn't understand the truth that was being taught. And because of that, you gave your attention to the words and you fixated on the little things that you could put together and you completely neglected truth and faith. You completely neglected mercy and justice. You completely neglected what was right. And you neglected it because you didn't possess the ability to believe. And it makes you blind guides. And it leaves you condemned. Beloved, if you're going to obey God, faith is a key component. Because if you don't know what God commands and understand it according to truth and understand it according to faith, you're going to make stuff up. You don't believe me? Look around. Understand how many religions there are in the world that are 100% about things that people have dreamed up out of their own imaginations. You say, well, how do you know you're not that? You read a book that has been translated a thousand times and by all these people and all these... Yeah, okay, you're right. I do. But I worship the God who secured the book. And I worship the God who made sure that what we have is what we need. And I believe that because he gave me the faith to believe it. And you don't because he didn't. And I'll pray for you. There's not really any other answer. I'm not going to logically argue them down. I could, but it won't make a difference. 
Uh, if I've learned nothing, I've learned that where God is not at work drawing somebody, the sound of my voice only irritates. <laughs> so, what do we do? We do exactly that. We pray for them. We, we pray that God would open their eyes, and as we have opportunity, we speak truth into the void. As we have opportunity, we, we impart grace, because how will they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And maybe this time when they hear the truth, God will use the the truth to ignite a fire in them and give faith where faith was not. It's how he saved all of us. Do you recognize the fact that before God gave you faith, you didn't believe? Do you recognize the fact that you sat there stubbornly rejecting what God had said until the moment that God imparted faith into your soul? And in that moment, what you didn't believe, you suddenly believed. And you went, ah, I believe! It feels like a choice. It feels like we made a decision. All that happened is God gave us faith. All that happened is God gave us what he promised to give us. And it did what it does. And faith was made real. And life was breathed into dead flesh. In the end, knowledge apart from sanctifying faith is always going to be destructive. It's always going to do exactly what the Pharisees just did. It's going to render it down into the realm of legalism. Works are always going to tie somebody back to the law. It's going to do one of two things. It's either going to tie them into a law that they invented, and we're not going to deal with that because I don't have time for that today, or it's going to tie them back to the law that God himself wrote and they think somehow they can keep. Which of those two errors is larger? You decide. But neither one of them is going to save you. Look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, give us some very clear perspective on the question of our ability to keep the law to the satisfaction of God. Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16 says this, We who are Jews by nature, not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Check out the last sentence. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So the man who says to you, you know, I'm a pretty nice guy. I'm going to do the things that are in the Bible to do. I'm going to keep the law of God. And when I die, I'll stand up with God and we'll have a conversation and he'll weigh my life and and I'll be okay. That man will indeed have his conversation with God. But it will not go the way that he thinks it will go. Because he will find that the law of God has a standard that is absolutely impossible for man to keep. The law of God has a standard which is, in a word, perfection. The law of God says that you can have no transgressions of the perfect law of God from the moment of your birth until the moment of your death. And that includes, beloved, according to the word of Christ, what goes on in here. It means that you're never allowed to have been angry with somebody without just cause in the sight of God. 
It means that you're never allowed to even have uttered a half-truth, let alone a full lie. You're never allowed to have desired something that wasn't yours. You're never allowed to have looked at a woman with lust, desired her body for the sake of pleasure because it was appealing. You are never allowed to have done or thought anything which is contrary to the will and the word of God. I don't even really need to bring up the big pivoting hinge commandment right in the middle where it talks about honoring your father and mother because we all know none of us have done that right. You recognize the dilemma. The man who says, I'll be judged by the law will indeed be judged by the law. But the scripture tells us that the man who decides, I'll be judged by the law, will be condemned. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. This leaves a tremendous void of righteousness. For faith is not present in the one who seeks to be justified by the law. And faith is that which justifies. It is faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from our guilt. Look at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by what? By faith. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. The next time somebody tells you that they'll be justified by their works, you might quote Galatians 2.21 to them. If righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. If it were possible that anybody would be good enough, then conceivably it's possible that everybody could be good enough. Amen? If it's possible, it's possible. And if it were possible, then Christ, well, he didn't need to die. He didn't need to come. It makes him not the king of the universe, but the greatest fool who ever was. For he died a death that he didn't deserve, that did no good whatsoever, because we could have done it on our own. Now I want to make sure that everybody's clear. I'm not suggesting for one moment that that's the truth. But I am telling you that when somebody believes that they can be good enough to please God, that's what they're testifying. They're testifying that their lives are worth more than the life of Jesus. That their righteousness is somehow more acceptable in the sight of God than the perfect righteousness of Christ, imputed to those who have faith in him. Sadly, this is the kind of nonsense that man comes up with when he has a little bit of knowledge without faith. 
This is the kind of nonsense that drives many churches. This is the kind of nonsense that makes people give these little sermonettes that make people leave feeling so happy and feel so good about their life and about themselves because they're pretty nice people all in all and I don't want to say anything to offend them. These are the kinds of things that come out of knowledge without faith. And they're the kinds of things that we as followers of Christ must not only be on our guard against, but be actively fighting against. We must be willing to speak the truth into the darkness. We must be willing to say, that's not true. The Bible says this. That's not truth. The Bible says this. We we have to be willing to stand up and to speak the absolute truth because any attempt to return to the law as a means of righteousness not only undoes us, it undoes the work of Christ. And that should offend us. Beloved, let me put this as plainly as I possibly can. If me going to hell would bring more glory to God, then send me there. Okay? If it would magnify the name of Jesus that I would be damned, then may it be so. Christ is worth more than any of us. His glory is worth more than any of us. And we must be willing to stand and fight for His glory. We must be willing to speak the truth regardless of what people want to hear. We must be willing to say, no, my Jesus is worth more than that. You can't be good enough. Because by saying that you could be, you're saying He wasn't. And that should never rest well with us should never be something that we're comfortable with. That should never be something that we're willing to let stand. Here's the truth. Faith and works, they're not friends. Works hates faith. And faith is the master over works, according to Scripture. They're not buddies. They're not equals. Works happen because faith is. Look at me at Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, Paul's expressing truth about Abraham. And he's talking about how the things that Abraham did in believing God were not works. Verse 3, it says, What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So our works, they have nothing whatsoever to do with our salvation. Our works would be counted as a debt if we could somehow be justified by them. And the scripture says God is a debtor to no man. So where do works fit in? Because there are many who believe that when we preach justification by faith alone, what we're really saying is go out and live a godless life, Don't worry about how you live. Don't worry about holiness. Don't worry about righteousness. You're saved by faith. Go have fun. 
We've been accused of that. Pardon? You know them by their fruit. You know them by their fruit. That's exactly right. Look at Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, verse 25 and following says this. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all the nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience unto the faith. To God alone be wise, wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Did you catch that? You are saved for what? For obedience to the faith. What is obedience? It's what you do. It is the outworking of what you believe. You have been saved for the practice of your obedience so that it renders glory to the risen Christ and to God who is forever blessed, most high above all. You have been saved for His glory, not for yours. You have been saved for His glory, not for your satisfaction or for your comfort or even for the primarily the sake of your eternal souls. That is a secondary benefit, which is good. Don't, don't mishear me. But it's a secondary benefit. The primary benefit is that God be praised as it should be. You see, in the end, faith produces works which changes lives. Faith produces works which changes life. And it becomes what life itself actually is. Consider again Galatians 2.20. Flip back there real quick. We could read it. I could put Bob on the spot and make him quote it. It's his favorite verse. But if I were to put him on the spot, he would be all nervous. And he would be mad at me. So we'll just read it together. (laughs) You'd have a right to be. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith. Right? I I live it by faith. It's just this abstract idea. Is that what it says? No, I live by faith. How? Faith in the Son of God. And I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. So my faith has an object which is substantial. My faith has an object which is tangible. My faith believes something. I have to know what that something is or I don't believe it. Amen? Amen. Faith produces knowledge. Knowledge produce works. There is, the law has a place in our salvation. It shows us the knowledge of sin. It convicts us of our sin and our need for a Savior. It shows us our need and it shows us the provision of God for that need. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The verses that changed the world when Luther came across them. God used these two little verses to transform the world. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, 
for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, it's interesting to me that the quote that he uses there, the just shall live by faith, it's from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And there's only two places in the whole Old Testament where faith itself is actually even mentioned. And in both of them, um, we have this sort of flavor. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The other one's in Deuteronomy, and God says those people have no faith. The rest of the Old Testament is about an adherence to the law and an assumed faith, but faith itself, the saving faith which is anchored in Christ Jesus, it's something that God gave later. That's why Jesus gave John the Baptist the commendation that he was the greatest man in the Old Testament, but that the least of the saints, the least kingdom man, is greater than John the Baptist. Because the least kingdom man has the Spirit of God dwelling in him. The least kingdom man has the faith that has been imparted to him. And I want you to notice the conformity here. Pride never is pleasing. Pride says, I can do it. Pride looks at what God requires and says, I got that. (laughs) Pride's a redneck. Hey, y'all, watch this. I can do that. (laughs) Beloved... Pride's never pleasing to God. Arrogance is never pleasing to God. Faith is pleasing. Because faith says, God, I need you. The provision of God is our entire hope. And if we're going to trust Him for our salvation, we need to trust that He is capable not only of saving us, but of delivering us to the end. We need to trust him that he is capable of delivering anything that he wants to deliver and that he's capable of doing everything that he sets out to do. If we want to please our God, we must recognize that our faith is something he has given to us that we are to wear and return. That we are to put on and let it transform us. And we are to put it on and let it change the way that we think and the way that we interact. And we are to return it back unto him saying, Lord, this is yours. I want to give you praise for what you've given me. I understand something that I never did. You gave me grace. You gave me faith. You gave me hope. You gave me understanding. And and what He gives us as that which sustains us, we return to Him as praise. Does Does it give God honor for me to say, I did it? Not at all. It doesn't give God honor for me to say I did it in any portion. It doesn't give God honor for me to say I can do it in any portion. It gives God honor for me to openly, honestly acknowledge that anything in me that is good is Him. And that anything in me that is worth doing is Him. And that anything in me that is pleasing in any fashion is Him. It is honoring to God for me to acknowledge my weakness and to stand up under it by the grace and strength that He gives. It is honoring to my God for me to stand and speak His truth in whatever power He grants. So long as the truth that I'm speaking is truth according to Scripture. But we must all be very clear that whatever I say, if it is not Scripture should be jettisoned out of hand. 
It is God's word that we speak. It is God's word that we share. And it is God's word that changes us because the provision of God for our salvation is the whole of our hope. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are, what's the next verse? And are justified freely by his grace. The whole counsel of God speaks of our need and his provision. From the beginning of the book to the end of the book, it speaks of our need and his provision. And faith fits into that so magnificently. Our need and his provision. But works? Not at all. Works speak of our provision and God's need. I'm sorry. There's just no truth in that. Faith speaks of God's provision. It speaks of our need for a Savior. It speaks of God's triumph over death. It leads us to obedience as the knowledge of what God loves and the knowledge of what God hates is unveiled before us. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 21. We're almost done here. I just have a couple of more things we need to understand. Colossians 1, verse 21 says, You who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the truth of it. We understand what God loves and what God hates. And as faith is maturing in us, it produces obedience to that truth. But the burden of the writer of Hebrews was that the people in Palestine had perhaps let their works overtake their faith. They did some good things. They loved the saints. They ministered unto the saints. They did the right things. But he's very concerned that they need to lay hold of the faith which is securing them to Christ and not return to the old ways of the law. The entire book of Hebrews, remember if we step way back and look at the broad arc of Hebrews, the entire book of Hebrews is about teaching the supremacy of Christ over the Judaic system. The entire arc of Hebrews is about teaching that Christ is a better way. And in this specific passage, in this very particular place, it is about us recognizing the truth that sometimes we can be really busy doing good works and missing out on the practice of faith being accurately applied. If you do that, you run the risk of having knowledge without faith, which can be very destructive to your soul. Let your works grow from your faith. Let them grow from the reality of the fact that you know who God is. And as you know who He is, and you know what He loves, and you know what He hates... The only thing that you desire is to be pleasing in his sight. When that's the motivation of your heart, you're on the right track. Let's pray.
Father, we ask that you give to us grace. And we pray, Lord, that anything that has been said this day which is contrary to your word or contrary to truth would just die in this moment. But, Father, everything that has been said which is truth, I pray that you anchor it in our souls and that you cause us to grow in the grace that it delivers. Lord, let our lives be pleasing in your sight. Teach us to love you and to honor you. Teach us to obey you and to walk in faith that you, God, might be honored and not us. And we pray, Father, that in the midst of this day, that all that we do and all that we say might bring much glory to the risen Christ. For it's in his name we pray.